Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Matt Zolinski. He's professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego and founder and director of USD's Center for Ethics, Economics, and Public Policy. He's also the founder of the blog Bleeding Heart Libertarians, which ended its nine-year run on June 1st. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Thanks, guys. It's really great to be back here with you. What is a bleeding heart libertarian? Well, uh, when we started the blog, we adopted uh, as our kind of unofficial motto the phrase free markets and social justice. And so a bleeding heart libertarian in our eyes was somebody who believed that those two things could, contrary to uh, most people's belief, actually go together. Um, And we adopted that phrase partly because it was provocative. Uh, Social justice in particular is something that uh, raises a lot of hackles uh, among libertarians and and people on the right more generally. Um, And we can talk about that uh, as we go along, um, (laughs) because I think there's some some justification to those hackles being raised. Uh, But put aside the term social justice for the moment, at, at the simplest and most basic level, a bleeding libertarian is simply somebody who thinks that you can be a libertarian and still care a lot about uh, many of the things that people on the left uh, purport to care about, Uh, the poor, uh, fighting racism, fighting sexism, uh, the rights of immigrants, those kinds of things. Those those aren't incompatible with being somebody who supports free markets and limited government. And that really is, is the core of bleeding heart libertarianism. Those two things can go together. But this contrast to say, objectivists or Randians who may not even use the word libertarian, or, I mean, so that would maybe be the biggest foil. But um, in my experience, too, most libertarians probably do care about those things. It's So is it just the perception of libertarians that's the problem? Partly, yeah. So I think um, part of the pushback that we got from libertarians was based on the belief that we were distinguishing ourselves from all other libertarians in proclaiming that we cared about these things, right? Like, as though we were saying, like, we care about the poor, unlike all these other cold-hearted libertarians. And and I don't think that's right. I think part of what we were trying to do was show that the popular perception of libertarians as people who didn't care about these things was mistaken. Um, now, sure, you can find stuff in, in particularly in Ayn Rand that sounds cold-hearted. Um, you can find stuff in other libertarians that sounds cold-hearted as well. But part of what we wanted to do was to press people to dig a little deeper uh, and find the bleeding heart elements in existing libertarian ideas. Um, but also part of what we wanted to do is push libertarians to dig a little deeper into their own views and become a bit more bleeding heart. So uh, there are bleeding heart elements in a lot of existing libertarians, uh, but we wanted to dig those out, examine them, and push people to think a bit more carefully about them and perhaps uh, for libertarians to adopt those those views in a more consistent um, and, and rigorous and wholehearted kind of way. How does the Bleeding Heart Libertarians movement or idea fit into kind of the broader historical perspective of libertarianism and the libertarian tradition. Because if we go back and we look at early libertarians and proto-libertarians, you see a huge amount of talking in the language of concern for the poor. Like the, you know, American individualist anarchists were all about helping the poor against the power of the state. A lot of the classical liberals wrote in this. So is it the case that, you know, in the past, libertarians and, you know, adjacent groups spoke more in this language and then drifted away from it? Or is this a is this really kind of a new mode of thinking? Yeah, no, I'm really glad you asked that question because this is this is something that I've I've been thinking a lot about over the entire nine year run of Bleeding Heart Libertarians. Um, it's something that I've I've learned a lot about uh, from uh, from the blogs that that libertarianism.org runs, especially George Smith's blogs on the history of libertarian ideas. Um, and I think you're exactly right uh, that Bleeding Heart Libertarianism isn't a uh, an anomaly. It's not something that we invented out of whole cloth. Um, it is, in a lot of ways, it is a rediscovery of elements that have been present in libertarianism from the very beginning. And I think elements that were in some ways uh, more obviously present and maybe more consistently present uh, at the very beginning. So I 
I'm writing a book on the history of liberty. I have been for probably about nine years now uh, on the history of libertarian ideas with John Demasi. Um, and we see libertarianism um, as, as something that emerged out of classical liberalism in the middle of the 19th century. So right around uh, 1850, you start seeing a kind of radicalized um, more absolutist version of classical liberalism emerging, particularly in Britain and France and people like Herbert Spencer, uh, people like Frederick Bastiat, uh, Gustave de Molinari, um, and a little bit later in the United States with some of the individualist anarchists that you mentioned. And you're right. I mean, th this idea of concern with the poor um, is, is uh, everywhere in their writings. Um, they see the state uh, as problematic in part, in large part, because of the way in which it oppresses the weak. Um, they see markets and limiting government as desirable uh, in part of, in part, in large part, again, because of the ways in which it would, it would liberate the weak, um, right? The weakness and poverty and marginalization are not natural categories. They are in large ways, large ways, artificial categories um, that are the product of state action. Um, that I think gets lost. That that theme in libertarian thought gets lost to a certain extent, or at least obscured, maybe is a better word, in the 20th century. Um, you don't see it as much in what John and I call the post-war libertarian group, people like Murray Rothbard, um, Ayn Rand, and Robert Nozick. It's more in Rothbard than it is in Rand and Nozick, but even there, it's a little bit obscured. Um, I think there's an interesting historical story to tell about how and why it became obscured. Um, but part of what we're doing is, with the Bleeding Heart Libertarian blog, as I see it, is rediscovering this earlier dominant theme in libertarian thought from the 19th century um, and, and bringing it into today's world. It's interesting we bring this up now because uh, we're recording this in the midst of the pandemic and we're also recording this in the midst of widespread unrest across the United States over uh, racial policing practices. And on Twitter, uh, some of the things that we've seen have been complaints about libertarians. Where have libertarians been on racial social justice issues and where has Cato in particular been on these issues? And it makes you think about this post-war alliance you're talking about of libertarians and conservatives being anti-communism and being considered and libertarians being considered on the right. Uh, do you have an opinion, a strong view on where libertarians should fit on the political spectrum? You're also free to resist the entire political spectrum uh, is an answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's a mistake um, to view libertarians as on the right uh, politically. I think uh, it's, it's best to see libertarians as a, as a kind of, they're kind of liberal, um, though in a sense we're all we're all liberals today. I mean, people that we call conservatives in the United States are, for the most part, a kind of liberal. Edmund Burke, I think, was a liberal, um, right? So modern conservatism um, uh, derives from uh, sort of proto-liberal roots. Um, there is an element in contemporary. Well, I, I hesitate to call it conservatism, but there's an element in the contemporary Republican Party, element in the on the right today that definitely rejects some core liberal ideas, and I think that's problematic. Um, and I think that's something that libertarians should be extremely vocal in resisting, um, and that genuine conservatives should be genuinely um, vocal in resisting. Um, but uh, but yeah, as far as the political spectrum goes, I mean, I think yeah, to some extent you want to resist the whole thing. But um, if you're going to have to place libertarians somewhere on it, uh, I think I think we go on the left rather than on the right. Um, but I don't want to talk for too long. But I do want to come back to this issue of the of the protests that are going on because I think there's a real there's a real moment here, uh, and it's one that that libertarians it's one that libertarians should be grabbing. Enthusiastically, uh, some libertarians are grabbing it enthusiastically. Uh, there is, as you mentioned, a perception that libertarians aren't grabbing it; that they're maybe even distancing themselves from it. Um, I think that perception is wrong. Uh, I think it's understandable, um, but I also think it's something that libertarians have to take seriously. Right? The fact that we're perceived as distancing ourselves from this movement shows that we've got a, lo a lot of work to do, at least in the, the rhetoric that we use to talk about these things. 
as we're looking though, as as libertarians of whatever kind we call ourselves at the current protests, um, one of the one of the, I think the concerns that people who are for limited government and free markets have is that it's not that they might diverge from the protesters in say their desire to end racism in America or their desire to rein in abusive policing or to just help the the poor and underprivileged more broadly but that so we can we can agree on that goal but the mechanisms for doing it there'd be strong divergence on so particularly in a lot of the either anti-racism or helping the poor angle you you listen to the rhetoric of like a lot of the activists and it's it's very anti-markets it's you know we need we need robust government responses and robust redistribution and robust you know um anti-discrimination laws that you know libertarians often have real concerns about in their mechanisms of enforcement and so on and so how do how does libertarianism and bleeding heart libertarianism fit into that when we're we're allied with a lot of these people in in a lot of areas we're allied in goals in a lot of others but in some of them there are just not just differences of opinion but that where we think the things that they want would be like downright you know dangerous or profoundly anti-liberty yeah that's that's certainly correct uh, there are a lot of things that a lot of um some of the most vocal members of the black lives matter movement want that libertarians uh, would and should soundly reject uh, there are a lot of anti-market ideas there there are a lot of uh, statist ideas that libertarians would rightly reject but the core issue here the issue of resisting and reducing state violence against blacks is an easy one for libertarians, right? This isn't even on the margins. This isn't a hard case at all. This is something that libertarians, uh, this is right in our wheelhouse, right? This is the state literally, and it's not its boot on somebody's neck, but it's its knee on somebody's neck. Uh, and if there's anything that libertarians ought to be against, it's that. So whenever you have a popular social movement that's aimed against um, that they, that's aimed at making some big social change. Like take the abolitionist movement in the 19th century, right? Um, there are going to be a lot of people who supported ending slavery and also supported a bunch of other insane, crazy, dangerous ideas. Um, and there's always a kind of tactical question about there about you know how you go about distancing yourself from such people or to what extent you make common cause. But I think when the issue is as profound, the core issue, right, is as profoundly clear as either the abolition of slavery or the reduction of uh, police violence against um, civilians, then libertarians should not hesitate to um, as much as they can, make that issue theirs, right? Uh, to to get in there and, and to and to show uh, that this is something they support, that this is something that they're not, you know, it's not new to them that they've been supporting for some time. Uh, they're enthusiastic about it. This is this is our moment, right? Uh, and and we ought to seize it uh, unashamedly. Now you're in academia, so I imagine you encounter more outright socialists than the average person in life. Um, and it's something that Aaron and I have talked about because in our history of being at the University of Colorado at Boulder and in law school at University of Denver, both of us tended to make better friends with socialist professors or outright communist professors than we did with many more mainstream thinkers, which is something that doesn't strike me as that odd because if you on some basic level, if you think about libertarianism, it's kind of a theory of the unjust use of power and how uh, that powerful entity skews and affects people's lives. Um, is that something that you think that sort of BHL also fits into and in sort of having more productive conversations with maybe some of our, our socialist friends in terms of the kind of misuses of power that, that characterize the state? Yeah, so – it depends. Uh, I think BHL is – it was deliberately designed as a big tent. Uh, so we have a lot of people blogging at BHL, and there are a lot of people out there who call themselves bleeding heart libertarians who disagree with each other about 
uh, a number of, sort of fundamentally important questions of ethics and political philosophy. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, I view myself as a kind of pluralist classical liberal. Um, I'm not a utilitarian. I'm not a natural rights theorist. I think there are great insights to be derived from both of those traditions, but I wouldn't wholeheartedly embrace either of them. Uh, and I also, um, I'm not as radical and absolutist as uh, a lot of people I know who describe themselves as libertarians. Uh, you know, I'm not as absolutist as Nozick or Rand or Rothbard uh, on the issue of non-aggression, for instance, as you as you guys both know. Um, but we do have loggers who are, right? Uh, so Roderick Long, for instance, is a left-wing Aristotelian anarchist who's blogged for Bleeding Heart Libertarian since the very beginning. And I think in some ways, um, getting, circling back to your question here, Roderick has an easier time finding common cause with radical left-wing professors than I do, because at least he's a radical. I, I don't I've got radical elements, I guess, but uh, but I'm a I'm a fairly moderate uh, classical liberal. Um, I don't think that the status quo is deeply and fundamentally to its root unjust, and the whole thing ought to be burned down uh, and we start ought to start over again. Uh, I think a lot of people on the left do think that, and I think um, Roderick, um, to a certain extent thinks that too. Uh, so both what, what he has in common with, with people on the left is, is this view that there's a kind of deep structural fundamental injustice in the current system. Um, and that radical, almost revolutionary change, uh, is necessary in order to correct it. Um, I don't have that. Um, but I do, I do find common cause with a lot of my, uh, left-leaning colleagues on, on a number of particular issues uh, having to do with uh, poverty relief, structural racism, uh, and things like that. It's just it's a question, I guess, of, uh, of radicalism and the degree and the uh, deep-rootedness of the injustice. This brings up a question that I had in my notes to ask at the end, um, but it seems to follow on better here, so I'll ask it now. Um, as you said, Bleeding Heart Libertarians is a, is a big tent, um, and you have a lot of authors on the blog with a lot of very strong opinions about all sorts of things. Like with this disagreement between Roger or between Roderick and you on both radicalism and and kind of moderation, what were some of the other debates that existed or or kind of key points of disagreement among the people who called themselves BHLers? during the nine-year run? Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, and there certainly were a lot of them. Uh, some of them were more central than others, right? So some of these debates were somewhat peripheral in the sense that, um, you know, Jason Brennan, for instance, and I disagree about a lot of things, but none of them are, I think, well, no, I wouldn't say none, but uh, most of them aren't super central to the core of what it is to be a bleeding heart libertarian, for instance. So he has some views. That, that surprises on... me because Jason doesn't really have many controversial opinions. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's generally a fairly moderate and uh, uh, restrained folk. Uh, but um, uh, his view on, on adjuncts, for instance, and uh, what we should think of um, movements to increase the pay of adjunct lecturers or improve their working conditions. I have some disagreements with him about that, but um, that I think is is sort of a, a, an applied derivative issue, not really fundamental to what it is to be a bleeding heart libertarianism. His views on democracy are somewhat more fundamental to the question. And so I think both myself and Jacob Levy have some concerns about uh, elements in libertarian thought that are anti-democratic. Um, uh, and, and Jacob and I take the position that um, democracy is, um, and, and a commitment to democracy is, is fairly central to classical liberalism, both historically speaking and uh, in contemporary terms. Uh, so that's, that's a more fundamental debate. Um, but probably the biggest one uh, is has to do with the, the um, degree to which libertarians can or should support some form of um, welfare state. 
uh, and what form that welfare state should take. So I've been fairly uh, vocal in my support for a some kind of universal basic income. Uh, and a lot of my fellow bloggers disagree with me about that. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, and a lot of them think that we should have no welfare state at all, right? Uh, so not only uh, you know, is, the, is basic income a bad idea, but any kind of state-based redistribution is a bad idea. Uh, so that's certainly been a big debate that we've touched on a number of times uh, over the course of the blog. If we get into uh, some of the bigger questions that come from the left, I think especially in the last 20 years, wherein uh, and you're hearing it now with the protests talking about hierarchies and power hierarchies and uh, and different ways that different groups are oppressed by various systems. Uh, it leads libertarians into the discussion of what has been called thick versus thin libertarianism and the question of whether or not libertarianism is just a philosophy about what government can and can't do or whether or not we have anything to say about, say, what a business can do to its employees or some other non-state power structure. Um, and I believe heart libertarians like weighed that a, a couple times, but, but how do you think libertarians should, should think about those issues? Yeah, that's right. So uh, that's, that's something I wrote about uh, several times as well. Uh, and I, uh, pretty consistently came down on the side of thick libertarianism, um, meaning not that you can't be a libertarianism unless you, uh, or sorry, you can't be a libertarian unless you um, oppose racism and sexism and and all these other things. You can, I mean, you can you can support free markets and liberated government and uh, be quite reactionary on any number of social issues. What I meant in my defenses of thick libertarianism was that. Um, in my view, the, the best arguments for libertarianism, right, the best arguments for the conclusion that we ought to have free markets and limited government are also going to support an opposition to racism and sexism and a lot of other things that might not be definitive of libertarianism as such, um, but that nevertheless draw support from common foundations. So, for instance, one of the debates, this wasn't a uh, intra-BHL debate, but we got into a big debate, uh, I forget what year this was, maybe 2014 or so, with Crooked Timber, uh, the bloggers over at Crooked Timber, who are kind of a left-wing bunch of academics, um, over the issue of coercion in the workplace. Uh, and they wrote a post together uh, which I thought was really good and which made a, actually a pretty big impact on me, um, arguing that the kind of power that bosses wield over their employees in a capitalist market um, is uh, is a kind of thing that, that ought properly to be described as coercive, at least in some cases, um, and that people who were genuinely concerned with individual freedom uh, ought to take that kind of coercion pretty seriously. Uh, and I think that's right. Um, I think, you know, I think a lot of the libertarian responses to that are right, too. I think that, you know, competition, market competition uh, does a great deal and is probably one of the most effective ways of combating against that kind of coercion power. Um, but still, it, it happens. Uh, and when it does happen, uh, it's something that libertarians ought to be concerned about. Um, and and take seriously and maybe even um, be willing to adopt uh, certain policy views that they would otherwise reject in response to that kind of coercion. Right. So that that kind of argument is one of the things that leads me to take the idea of a welfare state um, or some kind of basic income seriously. I think one of the best libertarian arguments for a welfare state is that it will help to protect people against that kind of coercion by providing them with an exit option, by providing with them with the ability to say no uh, to an employer who makes demands of them um, that are unreasonable um, by, by being able to quit and, and not starve to death. I'll note for our listeners that we have an episode of the show with Professor Elizabeth Anderson on precisely that question of the, the power of private coercion, especially in the workplace. Um, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's a really interesting discussion. Um, I want to ask now about the a term that 
provoke strong reactions from everyone who uses it, whether pro or con, and that's social justice. Um, the bleeding heart libertarianism has tied itself to that term in a lot of ways, but at the same time, social justice is something that is sneered at by certainly conservatives and by a lot of libertarians. We hear, you know, the epithet is social justice warrior, um, and a lot of the stuff that does seem to happen under the the mantle of social justice looks pretty anti-libertarian. So what is what does social justice mean? I mean, if the term means anything at all at this point, what does it mean for in general and for bleeding heart libertarianism? And why why do you think that there's there's value in thinking about things from within a social justice frame? Yeah. So as I said, when we when we adopted the tagline free markets and social justice, we were we were being a bit provocative there. We knew that that was a, a phrase that raised people's hackles. And we sort of wanted to do that uh, just to, to get people to look uh, and uh, and take an interest in what we were doing. Um, but it, it wasn't insincere. Uh, we thought that there was something to the idea. We didn't have a well-worked-out theory of what social justice was. Um, we still don't. At least we don't have a, a group theory. Uh, different members of the blog might have their own well worked out theories of what social justice is, but there's probably nothing that we all agree on there, um, except a kind of core basic idea, which is primarily economic, right? So we we started this blog as a group of academic philosophers, and so for us, when we used the phrase social justice, we were largely thinking of that in light of people like John Rawls, for whom social justice was about something like distributive justice, right? It's about distributing the uh, the products of uh, of society in a in a fair and equitable way. Um, not so much about racism or sexism. You know, Rawls doesn't really talk about those issues in any kind of detail. Um, it's not about identity politics. Again, that's largely absent from from Rawls. Um, and so th- those issues, those non-economic issues are sort of on the periphery of our thinking. We're mainly thinking about things in, in economic terms. And the core idea that we had uh, that I think we all agreed on was that um, if it turned out that people on the left were right, that libertarian institutions, if they were consistently adopted, would impoverish the poor or uh, doom them to a life of oppression or exploitation. Um, if all those things turned out to be really true, then those would be really good reasons to doubt that libertarian institutions were morally justified. Right. So it's it's kind of a hypothetical claim, right? Like you know that that the ability of free markets and limited government to serve the interests of the poor is a necessary condition on its moral justification. Uh, straightforward natural rights arguments that you know, uh, libertarian institutions respect your, your, your individual right to self-ownership and private property, or utilitarian arguments that libertarian institutions maximize utility, those by themselves, we all thought, were not, by, again, by themselves sufficient to justify libertarian institutions. Um, this challenge from the left is one that had to be uh, faced and met. You've been discussing a couple of times, we discussed welfare and universal basic in- income and some other things that, that as you dealt with, as you and all the bloggers dealt with for the course of Bleeding Heart Libertarians, there are many libertarians and some who might be listening to this podcast who are rolling their eyes and saying you're using the word libertarian and you shouldn't be using the word libertarian if you're talking about the possibility of a welfare state. Now, I'm not one of those absolutist people either, but it does raise the question of what the irreducible sort of like minimum requirements of being a libertarian and libertarian is or are. Um, and we, of course, we could choose the word classical liberal or something, but this has come up in terms of how how you know, libertarians can disagree about the welfare state or how it's being provided, or we can maybe even disagree about immigration, but you can say, well, what is the minimum requirement for being a libertarian to believe that? So for example, in immigration, 
we've had this conversation at Cato a few times. Uh, does everyone have to be open borders to be a libertarian? Like, I don't necessarily think so, but I think the minimum requirement is a presumption of move, of movement, that there's a presumed right uh, to move across borders uh, that could be defeated. Um, when we're talking about welfare, have you ever, have you had thoughts on, you know, what's the sort of minimum to be a libertarian if you support some type of welfare? Yeah. So uh, both the question of what defines someone as a libertarian or what the boundaries are around that concept that rules some people out uh, and the question of to what extent uh, support for a state-based welfare system is compatible with libertarianism. Those are both issues to which I've, I've given a lot of thought. Um, I think the first one is it's a difficult question to answer uh, because language is socially constructed, right? I mean, we use we use words however we want to use them. There's no natural category of libertarian, and different people use this this term in, in different kinds of ways. So, for instance, just to give you an example from my own experience, um, I describe myself as a libertarian in some contexts, and in other contexts, I don't. Um, in the context of U.S. political culture as a whole, I think it's perfectly appropriate to call myself a libertarian because relative to the status quo, I favor fairly radical movements in the direction of liberty and, and, and in you know, what would sort of uncontroversially be um, regarded by libertarians as the direction of liberty. Um, if, on the other hand, I'm at a libertarian conference with people like you and, and Aaron and my fellow bloggers, there I would probably describe myself as a classical liberal to distance myself somewhat from people like Rand and Nozick and Rothbard on the one hand, who I think are what I would call strict libertarians, and to put myself more in the tradition of people like um, Friedrich Hayek and David Hume and Adam Smith. And everyone else is going to call you a socialist. That, that reminds me of the Mises Friedman Hayek moment at Mount Pelerin, where I think Mises That's called right. him a bunch of socialists, right? Yeah. That's right. So the, so the context matters, right? I mean, like, you know, what it makes sense to call yourself or call someone else depends on who or what you're trying to distinguish them from. And um, and that's going to vary depending on who you're talking to and what purpose you're trying to achieve. So I'm I'm doubtful that there's any one answer to the question of what defines a libertarian. I think there are a number of concepts, and this is something that John and I talk about in our book. There are a number of concepts that are more or less central to the libertarian intellectual tradition. Uh, concepts such as you know, support for free markets, support for notions of private property, support for uh, limited government, and the kind of skepticism of authority. And you know, the more of those boxes you check, um, the more libertarian you are, the more squarely you fall within the, the libertarian tradition. Um, but it's it's not a it's not a circle with hard and fast boundaries uh, where it's it's you know obvious that, um, uh, that for every person you know which side of the line they fall on. Now, as for the welfare state. Um, it, and the extent to which support for some kind of state-based transfers um, either is compatible with libertarianism or, or rules you out of it. I think if we just go on the historical evidence here, um, you know, and you look at what people who are pretty uncontroversially described as libertarian said, um, you actually find more support for some kind of welfare state than you might think um, from the outside, right? So uh, Friedrich Hayek, of course, a lot of people know this now, but Friedrich Hayek supported uh, something that looks awful lot like a universal basic income, though he thought that people had an obligation to work, um, so it wasn't quite unconditional. Uh, Milton Friedman, of course, supported the negative income tax. Uh, there's a bit in Nozick where he uh, at least flirts with, and that's kind of all that Nozick ever does with ideas is flirt with them. Um, he at least flirts with the idea that the welfare state can be justified as a kind of compensation for historical injustice. Um, and you find that same idea, interestingly, um, in in the guy who probably uh, has the best claim of anybody in the history of libertarian ideas to being the least bleeding heart person uh, ever to write, which is Herbert Spencer. Uh, so Herbert Spencer, who's known by most people today as a, as a cold-hearted social Darwinist, thought that the English poor laws uh, could be justifiable as a compensation for the seizure of lands uh, that were made by the English state um, uh, during the enclosures period. 
Um, so, you know, you find at least some contingent and maybe historically, you know, contextually specific support for welfare states among a lot of different libertarians. And I think there's, there's good reason for that. Uh, you can, um, you can support a welfare state, I think, um, while still holding to your good libertarian instincts about skepticism of the state, all the kind of public choice concerns about how these things are going to grow out of control and be captured by special interest groups. Those are all perfectly, perfectly valid concerns, concerns about individual responsibility, the desire to uh, provide people with sufficient incentives to work. Those are all really good points, um, but they don't, I think, rule out the very possibility of a welfare state. And there are good libertarian reasons such as those I gestured at earlier about preventing private coercion, right? Protecting people from uh, the kind of coercion that uh, economic dependency can subject them to uh, in the marketplace for thinking that um, you know, we can justify a welfare state on grounds of freedom. Well, it seems to me that if if you're you're thinking at least in the, along the right lines, you know, kind of going back to this vague notion of how do you define this broad category? But if you're thinking about sort of past state injustice or or what what justifies moving away from the the presumption that you don't take people's stuff and give it to other people and realize that that needs some sort of at least justification if you're going to do it. But I've played with the idea of of I mean I find the public schools to be such an abhorrent mess and a human rights violation that that I you know that's the kind of thing where you say, well maybe we owe them money for forcing these kids to be in public schools for so long. But at least you're having the right thoughts about what would justify writing checks to people. Yeah, one of the one of the phrases I used in one of the blog posts I wrote at BHL was uh, libertarianism starting now, which is the idea that right we have a society in which all kinds of plunder and oppression and slavery and theft take place, right? Um, and then we decide that we're going to start respecting private property and holdings, right? So all the stuff you just stole from that group over there and all their destitution is now kind of locked in by this rigid adherence to libertarian norms. And that seems wrong, right? That seems deeply unjust. So if we're, if we're going to take these libertarian ideas seriously, then we got to face up to the question of what to do about all the infractions of those you know, infractions is uh, kind of a, too minimizing a word to use, but the, the, the uh, ramshackle running over of those norms that has taken place in the past and where that's left uh, different groups within society um, both both those on the bottom and those on the top. What are we going to do about all those historical injustices? You mentioned the public choice concerns in passing, and I want to dig a bit more into that kind of worry about the the classical liberal end of libertarianism and and the BHL end, particularly in in the specific policies that a lot of BHL people advocate. And that's the concern that this stuff sounds good and it would be nice if we could have the the minimal or the night watchman state that also gives people a basic income but we know that states love power um they they just aggregate all the power they can acquire all of it that they can at any opportunity they have we're watching right now we're recording this in in the middle of protests around the country about police misconduct and their protests that have also done a tremendous job of demonstrating just how misconduct prone the police are as we all watch countless videos of the state beating people senseless because they had the gall to stand up and say, please don't beat me senseless. Um, and and so there's a real worry, and this is a worry that you know anarchists have about minarchists and minarchists have against classical liberals and all the way on up, that there's there's almost like a naivete that like if you let any level of the state in, whether it's a welfare state or whatever else, it's we're gonna end up with something far worse than what you intended. This is, you know, similar to call this the road to serfdom sort of argument or a slippery slope. Um, and so, yes, there are there are concerns that we might have about too minimal of a state leading to some problems, but those some problems are likely to be far less worse than the problems we get if we kind of let anything in the door. 
Yeah, I get that. Um, and I've, I've heard those concerns a lot. And I have I have a great deal of sympathy with them. I think they're they're on point uh, and there's certainly something to be on guard against. Um, I don't know where they leave us at the end of the day. For instance, I don't think that they necessarily push strongly in favor of uh, anarchist or uh, you know, as small a state as you can possibly get kind of views. Because after all, what these public choice arguments are presenting to us is the observation, the entirely correct observation, um, that people try to get and expand and maintain their power. Uh, and that phenomenon doesn't go away when you abolish the state. Um, you're still going to have that drive in human nature. And it's not obvious to me that power will be harder to get, uh, maintain, or expand and abuse in an anarchist society um, than it would be in, say, just to, to pick the most uh, biased and favorable uh, counterexample, um, you know, a sort of transparent, democratically governed, um, classical liberal state. Right. Um, so there, there's an observation here about human nature, which I think is entirely on point. But the institutional implications of that observation to me are are unclear. Uh, I think that, that we ought to definitely take precautions, but uh, and, and do what we can to subject power to as much scrutiny uh, as we can. Uh, but I don't I don't think it sort of leads obviously in favor of anarchists or, or minarchist uh, views as opposed to, say, classical liberal views. Going forward, as uh, you kind of said that BHL, Bleeding Heart Libertarians, was kind of both a you know, substantive disagreements and substantive new ways of looking at things uh, that was different from what many libertarians had said, or, or especially in the post-war period, and also a rhetorical strategy uh, for being better at communicating to some who may have no desire to listen to libertarians because they met one in their freshman college philosophy class and he wouldn't shut up about Ayn Rand and now they never want to hear what we have to say again. <laughs> um, not that I've ever met those people. Uh, but going forward from like a rhetorical standpoint and just libertarianism in the place of politics in America and around the world now, but I guess more specifically America, and this is not about you're not, you know, political scientists in the way of handicapping the future of American politics, which is obviously a fool's errand at this point. But how can libertarians sort of be better? And if we are better, how can we better put ourselves in sort of the changing tectonic shifts that are occurring in American politics right now? Yeah. So I think look, a lot of people reject what I sometimes call the strong bleeding heart libertarian view, which is that um, some condition of social justice is a necessary um, requirement for the justification of, of libertarian institutions, right? So in, in other words, unless you can show that libertarian institutions don't starve the poor or provide them with some, or that they do provide them with some adequate level of well-being, then those libertarians aren't, institutions aren't justified. Some people reject that view. Fine. Okay, I disagree with you, but um, but even if you reject that view, you can still adopt what I call a a weak or a contingent bleeding heart libertarian view, which is the view that I think a lot of libertarians have, including that whole post war bunch of Rand, Nozick, and Rothbard, um, which is the view that you know, as it turns out, <laughs> um, libertarian institutions really do work to the benefit of the poor. That's not a condition on their justification, right? Those those institutions. On, on their view are, are justified because um, they are the the requirements of a consistent respect for individual freedom and individual rights. Um, but it so happens, lucky us, uh, that those institutions also benefit the poor and women and uh, ethnic minorities, right? Um, so you can have that view um, and, you know, you can still call yourself a bleeding heart libertarian, I think. Um, you just you're, you you care about the poor and you're happy <laughs> that libertarian institutions work to their benefit. Um, in which case, I'd encourage you to talk about that. Right? Uh, I, I think that's something that is a selling point. Would be a selling point um, 
of libertarian institutions to a lot of people. Um, so uh, you know, play that up. Should talk about how um, libertarians have have uh, promoted police reform over the years, right? Um, talk about how libertarians were in the forefront of the movement against slavery and imperialism in the 19th century. Talk about the way in which libertarians supported uh, women's rights, right? Those are all attractive elements of libertarianism to a lot of people. And so even if you think you know, those aren't the reasons why libertarianism is true, um, they're still good things and, and we should celebrate them. Why now, after nine years, bring Bleeding Heart Libertarians, which I'll tell our readers, and we'll put there's a there's a post up on there that pulls together some of the best posts over the years, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Um, but for readers who have not read Bleeding Heart Libertarians, it's it's hard to understate how significant it's been in the intra-libertarian and political philosophy of libertarianism debates over the near decade that it's run. It's um, a ton of really important thinkers contributed really important ideas to it. So even if you disagree with everything Matt has said to us over the last 45 minutes, um, it's well worth your time to read and wrestle with these ideas. But it's also then kind of sad to see it ending after nine years. So why, why bring it to a close now? Yeah, um, we could have kept it going. Um, I think, you know, especially especially given the, the kinds of things that are happening uh, in our country today, I think there's there's a lot for bleeding heart libertarians to say. Um, but uh, yeah, a couple of things. First, we had all sort of, or at least a lot of us, already moved on in a lot of ways. We started this blog when we were fairly junior academics. Um, and, um, and then we got older, you know, we had kids, we moved on to other projects. And so the volume of posts on the blog had just had gone down pretty significantly over the last few years. Um, people were, were busy doing other things. Um, and so in some ways we'd already moved on from the blog. Uh, we just hadn't sort of called it what it was yet. Um, so there was that. And then there was the fact that I think we sort of made our point. Um, we, we wanted to do something with this blog. We wanted to show that free markets and a concern for social justice were compatible. We wanted to highlight the work of philosophers who were already working in that vein, right? People like, you know, our, the, the people who sort of raised uh, my generation of philosophers, people like David Schmitz and Gerald Gauss and John Tomasi. These were libertarian philosophers whose work we felt wasn't as well known as it should be. And we wanted to highlight that work and its centrality to uh, the evolution of classical liberal thought. Um, and we wanted to not just, not just sort of make um, non-libertarians more aware of what libertarians were doing, but we also wanted to make libertarians more aware of what non-libertarians were doing. Uh, so we wanted the learning to be bi-directional, right? We thought that libertarians had stuff to learn from, non-libertarians and that uh, non-libertarians had a lot to learn from libertarians. And I feel like we, we did all that and we kind of ran out of stuff to say. And so it was better to put a period at the end of that sentence rather than to sort of let it um, fade out over time. Um, so we'll keep writing on themes related to bleeding heart libertarianism. There's going to be a lot of that in the book that I'm writing with John Tomasi on the history of libertarian thought. Um, uh, and the other bloggers um, are doing similar kinds of work, um, you know, Bas van der Vossen stuff on property rights and, and international justice has a lot of BHL elements to it. Uh, Jacob Levy's ongoing work, Jason Brennan's uh, voluminous ongoing work. Um, we'll just be doing it in in other venues. Now there's, of course, like a lot of uh question, you know, ideas to be worked out as you put in the final post. Uh, uh, some of them we've already been discussing. Uh, where do you see sort of the idea of bleeding heart libertarians like go from here? I mean, I guess maybe at minimum, it, it becomes a a taxonomy, part of the taxonomy of what kind of libertarian are you? Uh, but, but also the influence uh, going forward. Uh, where do you see that going? Yeah, well, what I've learned from studying the history of philosophy is that the best way to be remembered and talked about years after you die is be 
uh, incredibly vague and leave a lot of questions unanswered. <laughs> if you're if you're completely clear uh, and you just say everything you want to say and then uh, and then end it, uh, nobody wants to talk about that. It's like it's but, like uh, Plato too. Yeah, <laughs> Plato, Nietzsche, Kant, Hegel, you, you name it. Right. Just the the, the more obscurantist you can be, the more uh, the more relevant you'll be. Now, I look. There are a lot of uh, we tried to make progress as best we could on a lot of these questions, but they're just they're hard questions, right? I mean, it's the nature of social justice. What is that? Uh, what does that imply in terms of all kinds of different policy positions from welfare states to immigration policy to drug laws? Um, you know, we touched on all of those topics, but I don't know that we settled any of them. So uh, there's a, uh, a slew of research programs here um, that people who follow in our footsteps uh, can and, and hopefully will follow. Um, and um, and I hope that, you know, we've we've reached not just academics. I mean, again, we that was our primary audience to begin with. We never thought we'd get much of an audience beyond academia. Um, but uh, and, and we did want to influence them to think about libertarianism differently. But I think we did in the end reach um, beyond the academic audience um, and maybe made some impression on the way that non-academics who identify them libertarians themselves as libertarian think about themselves and see themselves as falling within the political landscape. So I hope that um, going forward, people um, think of libertarianism and uh, and social justice as, as not incompatible, as there being more in common there than perhaps uh, they'd appreciated in the past, and that they can work uh, to forge political alliances not just with people on the right who want to shrink government and cut taxes and cut government spending, which is all well and good, and I'm completely in favor of it, uh, but also with people on the left who want to reduce inequality and provide uh, opportunity for people at the bottom end of the socioeconomic spectrum who want to fight racism and sexism. Um, that there's a lot of opportunities for working with those people as well while still holding true to one's libertarian's beliefs. You don't have to compromise. Um, that's not a, a foreign view. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.